It was great fun to have my friend Chris Keith on the show for this episode. Chris is a professor of New Testament and early Christianity at St. Mary's University in London. We talked about several of Chris's books, especially his work on literacy in the ancient world, as well as other interesting topics regarding the Gospels and history. First, let me, I've always first wanted to give you a gift. Oh. Taking time out of your sabbatical. Oh. I think I know your loves. I know oh, your love yeah. Language. Where did you so, get it? Uh, well, you know, I'm from central oh, Illinois. Oh, yeah, and yeah, so yeah. I, would go back I forget there. I forget that there. I think it, it's an Illinois thing. Right? Uh, well, it's it's made by, it, it used to be at least, uh, Double Cola, which was the people that made yeah, like. Yeah, uh, I grew up. Yeah. That made RC. RC. That's what I grew up on. Yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. Well, and it's it's really only around places that where there's lakes. It's a thing. It's a thing. Oh, is for, that what it is? Yeah, yeah. That's uh, why it's in like southern and Carlisle central. Lake. Illinois. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that, yeah. And and uh, and then in Kentucky, it, I mean, you really, it's really around places that. Because uh, it's made with lake water, or because it's fresh. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, even there's, you know, the lady here is yeah, skiing, yeah, but yeah. It, it, it's always. I mean, the the. Uh, <laughs> The slogan used to be "Ride the Wake," but it was—it's uh, for people who who you know would go to go water ski. One question I always like to ask people is, uh, "What was your first car?" Oh man, 1988 Chevy Silverado. Nice. Okay. Yeah, it, I wish I could find that. I, we sold it. I had 33-inch tires on it, <laughs> and uh, had to put a system in it. I love that. Truck. So wait, did you get it like in high school or something? Or? Yeah, high school. Okay. Yeah, I mean, when uh, it was my my grandfather had a, a, this truck and he passed away. Not with thirty three inch wheels, probably. No, he did not have. He had like the topper and everything with the paisley designs on it. <laughs> it was slick, and um, he he passed away right around right. Well, I was sixteen when he passed away. Uh -huh. And so I kind of got his truck. And yeah, so I yeah. took the topper off and put a fiberglass cover on the back and put 33-inch tires and rent, got rims for it and put a system in it. <laughs> and uh, man, that thing was awesome. It had a V8 in it and uh, it, it would fly. I bet. It was a, oh, it was a great truck, yeah. yeah okay. I, I mean, what so, happened with it? Did it die? Or uh, I, I went to college and, and then uh, moved overseas. And when we were in Scotland, my, my parents were keeping it because it was my mother's dad's sure. truck. Uh, they were keeping it in their garage, and eventually they 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 sold. It doesn't it. look like a very PhD kind of. We were they were maybe envisioning you coming back with your PhD. Oh, from I don't. I'd, I, I would have been happy to right. drive around that truck. No one would have ever guessed I was a PhD, so nobody would have asked, asked me kind of right. Bible questions. Right. Well, like, look and, at this redneck. And you, I mean, you're driving a big truck now. Yeah, I'm yeah, I've always day. driven it. I've never driven right. anything but a truck. Well, here's a question I have for you as well. I wondered if you recognize any of these <laughs> people. This is, uh, this is these are other people who go by the name Chris oh, Keith. Whoa! Yeah. How did you know? Well, I'm this is the best one. <laughs> oh, I was gonna. I was doing this thing. <laughs> okay, the scary guy. thing is that kind of looks like yeah. you, and it's only gun. Yeah, so. this is back when I drove the 88 Silverado. And that's not you, is it? Was, no, oh, okay. no, 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 no. I freaked out for a second because it kind of looks like you. Yeah, but that's no. the best. Okay, so you. So I was gonna totally juke you. I thought you were gonna stand yeah. there for a while. What, well, is, what are these two I recognize this guy. The, the reason that I know okay. it is because you know James Crossley is my um, yeah. colleague at St. Mary's, yep, yep. and there's a James Crossley in the UK who is a bodybuilder, uh, and like and I think used to be on uh, uh, what was the show uh, when it would have been in the 90s that uh, uh, 
the where they like they had the contestants go American Gladiator. American Gladiator, yeah. Right, were, yeah. Yeah, this guy was I think okay, one of the right, gladiators. Right. And like an like English that. version of it or something? I don't know if it's the English version. I may have gotten the details wrong, yeah. but I know there's a bodybuilder in the UK named James Crossley. Okay. So we we've made jokes so before yeah, about Yeah, right. so I recognize this bodybuilder Chris Keats. I haven't seen James Crossley in a long time, but my distinct memory of him is he's that not he looks a bodybuilder. Like, it looks like <laughs> I'm gonna note that. It, lo- it looks like he's uh he's a boxer the, now. The though. guy from uh, Lost with the um, I, I associate with the always look like he had eye makeup on <laughs> you know what I mean do you remember there's this one character in Lost I can't remember uh-uh, but I always no. in my mind they're associated together it's kind of no, like no a Toby idea. from West Wing and Tom Wright have you ever seen those <laughs> did, I, seen I'm West not, Wing? I didn't watch okay. West Wing All right, yeah. yeah anyways okay sorry good. oh well it was still good though the, <laughs> yeah the, you got me the, I haven't seen the other the, ones the third one was the best yeah because it's like like what do these people have in common <laughs> I don't know uh, I, I don't know they had I beautiful names like, though yeah exactly I think she's like a duke or something she's like a researcher at duke or something so oh field. so these are legit but this this cracks me up <laughs> look at too him much that's right before a really bad accident the, the guy's holding a gun <laughs> We'll, we'll we'll do a we'll do a screenshot of yeah. it. Yeah. So yeah, that's very. I've cool. always wanted there to be a physical fight to break out at the SBL and see who, <laughs> see who who comes out on top. I've, 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 when I was a, uh, I helped organize. You do it. all right, probably. <laughs> Well, I don't know. It depends on uh, if our body, our bodybuilder alter ego showed up. They, I've all uh, asked when Matthew Collins worked for yeah. SBL. I yeah. was uh, this. I organized the student le- the student volunteers when they did the international SBL. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I asked. I was asking, what's the craziest thing that's ever happened at SBL? And I desperately wanted. I, I wanted to find out that at some point in time. Yeah. Someone had gotten in a, a, a it's fist fight. Pro- you would imagine, probably. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, you have <laughs> a lot people of egos from all over the place. There's a lot of egos and, and a lot no? of angry people. And no, no. He said that they shut one down, that there was... Uh, now, what Matthew was telling me was there was once one where a uh, panelist had made a, some, a, a comment that another panelist took as anti-Semitic. Uh, and okay. that they thought uh, I won't name names, yeah, but yeah. they but they right. thought that it was that it was going to come to blows, oh my and that uh, they shut the panel down. Okay, so I can't remember. Are you a UK fan or a U of L fan? <laughs> Is this a setup? I, yeah, yeah, totally. I can't joke you with anything. Like, I was expecting on both these things I was going to juke you for a while and you were going to get like, pissed off or something. But no, you're, like, you, know, you can read me quickly, I guess. So, but what is the connect? Do you, is your sister a coach or something? Uh, I, I don't know my, what the No, my, 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 my youngest sister, I have two sisters. My youngest sister coached uh, at Western Kentucky University. Oh, right, okay. Um, no, I grew up. I mean, I, I grew up a U of L fan. My dad had season tickets since he was in graduate school at U of L, hmm. and so I grew up going to all the basketball yeah. games, all the football games. Um, even back before the Louisville Bats were the Louisville Bats, they were the Louisville Redbirds. They were the Triple A team for the Reds, right. and yeah, okay. uh, and we would go to the Louisville Redbirds okay. uh, games too there for a while. So. Um, yeah, I, I grew up in it, and uh, I used, you know, living in 
the UK, I'd get people all the time when I'd tell them I was yeah, from yeah, Kentucky. Right, right, right. For some reason, they knew the University of Kentucky, and they'd say, "Well, are you are you a UK a UK basketball fan, a Kentucky basketball fan?" I was like, "No, you're not. Where I'm from, you're not." <laughs> You're not allowed to cheer for both of them. Totally, right. <laughs> yeah, you think it's just one little state. Come on. No, um, there. Uh, Pat Forty, the he used to be at uh, the Courier Journal here in Louisville, and then he was at ESPN, and now he's with Yahoo Sports. Is writing a history of the UofL UK rivalry. Oh, really? Cool. Yeah. Okay. That reminds me of saying, I, I remember when we, because I'm not from Kentucky, so we had never lived here before that, and I remember so distinctly when we first moved back here after living three years in the UK that I would see UK stuff and the scripts that ran for me yeah, were not yeah, yeah. like it took me a little while to realize yeah. oh that's University of Kentucky like I thought well, that's weird that there are people that like the United Kingdom here yeah well <laughs> every once in a while I'll put something about UK on Facebook or something like that when yeah. U was playing UK or something yeah. and my friends in Every once in a while, my friends in the United Kingdom be like, "What is? What do you got against England, Scotland, and Wales, Northern Ireland?" Like, sorry, different UK. All right. So, if you'll choose a number for me between one and one hundred ninety-two, just a random number. Thirty-three. Thirty-three. Okay. So, if you wouldn't mind turning to page thirty-three of that delightful book, Uh. really enjoyed a lot, and read. A paragraph and see if you can make sense of it. Oh yeah. So that's a long <laughs> I've so been, maybe yeah. whatever you want. Yeah, I've been defending this point for a while. So okay. third, as is clear, form criticism assumes that the interpretations of Jesus in the written Jesus tradition came from later Christians, not the earliest stages of oral tradition. This assumption is clear in the quotations from Boltmann above above the aforementioned argument of Debellius that the earliest Palestinian Christians lack the literary sensitivity to be responsible for the gospel narratives. And perhaps most clearly in the crucial role of the early Christians at some Laban in the form critical model. You want me to keep going? Uh, Everybody might be bored to death. No, no, that's okay. But why, why don't you say something? You kind of frame that, frame the bigger argument, this part. And yeah, uh, well, it, it, as it relates to this book in particular, uh, really I had finished my first book, which was on the portrayal of Jesus' writing and the story of the woman caught in adultery. And it had nothing to do, despite what some reviewers have said, had nothing to do with the historical Jesus at all. Uh, but I realized that I'd done most of the work, the research on literacy and yep. and its connection to status and whatnot in the ancient world, uh, to, to write a book on the literacy of the historical mm-hmm. Jesus, and that somebody somewhere was going to write that, and I was in a position to do it. But what I, when I started working toward that project, I realized that the way that I thought about the historical Jesus and how we can talk about him really was out of step with what was going on in historical Jesus studies. Mm-hmm. Because I had studied with Tom Thatcher in Cincinnati and when he was very first breaking with Alan Kirk, breaking social memory theory into the English-speaking mm-hmm. world, uh, it had been present in Germany for a, a while before that. Uh, in France but um, so I really thought of tradition and how you use it in, in, in talking about history very very differently and so and I thought well if I just dismiss the criteria of authenticity out of hand and just say well I'm really working with this theory that hasn't really been applied right. in a specific way yet uh, I'm going to set myself up for yep. a whole lot of criticism, yep. which, yep. I mean, there's plenty of criticism anyway. Yeah, but, uh, yeah it's not like you've avoided it. Yeah, <laughs> but um, so what I had to do was show how the, and I had 
since this very early on, uh, even in doctoral work, I distinctly remember talking to Rafael Rodriguez at a SBL when we were PhD students. He was at Sheffield and I was at Edinburgh. And I made this comment. He said something about the criteria of authenticity. And I said, the criteria of authenticity are just form criticism in disguise. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I thought that was... I thought that was kind of uh, self-evident, but I realized when I started doing more work in historical Jesus studies that it wasn't evident mm. to, <laughs> to very many other people, and so that I was going to have to actually argue that. Right. And so I went back and kind of made the argument that the current tradition model that's still used in historical Jesus studies at the time that I was writing this book was really really was form criticism in terms of what its assumptions about the tradition were and mm-hmm. what made this really interesting was form criticism had kind of fallen to the wayside yeah. but, it but kind it's of, assumptions yeah exactly in, especially in the Jesus seminar yes, et cetera, it's, right? it's, yeah. fr- it's framework for understanding the nature of the tradition yep. had been taken on board totally. and had survived and so um, ghosts never Steve, uh, Stephen Neal says in his history of New Testament research that ideas die but their ghosts linger yeah and they, yeah they really, and there's really a lot there. there's yeah. a lot to be said right. for that and so uh, you know that whole section started out as an article that was in Seitzer for Die Neue Testamentliche Wissenschaft uh, and then I developed it more in the in, in the chapter of this book but it was largely just saying uh, that the criteria of authenticity really came together as a coherent methodology in historical yeah. Jesus studies. And this was before that conference and book. So then that, yes. that spun off out of that as well. Yeah, like, I yeah. noticed this spun, this was a spinoff and this spun out some other things too for you, right? Yeah, well, the, that's right. That's right. I mean, it's the, the, the first two or three real uh, academic studies that I've done have all kind of unfolded yeah, from each yeah. other, uh, and yeah, the criteria of the G, uh, Jesus criteria and the demise of authenticity really came out of that because at, at that time Anthony Ladon was at um, and I were colleagues at the same university, mm-hmm. and we were having just these we you know every day we were talking about this every workday uh, we were in one of our offices talking about this yeah. and I mean getting into really heat friendly but heated conversations and then we started realizing if if we think this then you know if we're having this difference of opinions and he and I agree like on mm-hmm. 90% of stuff and he had done memory stuff with Dunn right of a sort yeah a that's bit, right completely right? independent of, right. of when I had started my master's work and Anthony when he about the same time I was working with Tom Thatcher in Cincinnati he had gone to uh work with James Dunn uh, but I don't think that it was Dunn I, I don't think it, Dunn gave him the idea I think he, he picked up Fentress and Wickham's book on social memory and kind of got in that way but uh, but he and I agreed on so much as it relates to tradition and memory right. uh, but on this this specific issue of the criteria of authenticity I mean we would just go at it like cats and dogs right, right. And it was really, I mean, it was one of the most productive periods yeah, yeah. of my career. I was really fortunate to have Anthony as yeah, a colleague yeah. that early in my career because we were we were really, you know, it was that whole kind of cliched iron sharpens yeah, iron totally. thing. But, yeah. but, you know, Anthony was at the cutting edge of Jesus studies and, and I was working uh, at kind of trying to abandon what had been going on. And we were just going back and forth. And then we had uh, we had some conversations with some other colleagues where we were at dinner. And the same thing, this big argument broke out. And people 
weren't being rude, but they cared. Mm-hmm. And that's when we were like, man, we've got to put together a conference totally. like this because right, yeah. people are just dying to claw each other's eyes out over it. <laughs> so uh, so you, you kind of, you, you wanted a cage fight at SBL, and so you thought, well, if they're not going to have it there, we'll we'll have a conference where it can happen, right? Yeah, well, I right. mean, I don't, I don't remember SBL. <laughs> Eventually, you know, the cage fight at SBL did come several times, but... Uh, but the it wasn't it wasn't a matter of SBL not having it. We were we were really at this tiny. No, university. I missed the fighting part of it. You were saying. Oh it yeah. Wasn't oh yeah. 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 We. I was hoping to kill two birds with right, one stone. Right, I was hoping right. maybe if this fight would break out over <laughs> historical Jesus studies. Okay, but the more specific argument is about obviously literacy and the question of Jesus. Right. What literacy looked like in the ancient world. Really, that's right. Ways, that's yeah. right. Um, because if if I hadn't. R- if I hadn't written the uh, methodology piece, the the conclusions and the way that I was using the gospel text later wouldn't have made any sense. Right. Because, again, under the standard way of doing things, uh, when the gospels disagree uh, or have conflicting images of Jesus, whichever one's authentic is the one that gets incorporated yeah. into historical Jesus studies. And I really thought, I really had a big problem with that because I thought, whatever you think about authenticity and inauthenticity, authentic and inauthentic traditions were subject to the same tradition process. Mm-hmm. So you just, you can't split them like that. As And, and, and furthermore, it, the whole process of doing that, to me, reeked of the hubris of modernity, oh, totally. you know, where, yeah. you know, Such these, stupid, overconfident. An, an, yeah, these yeah. stupid ancient people, thank goodness we've come along post-enlightenment yeah. to... to correct what they think. Exactly. That's not to say we've not made any advances, but it just totally didn't respect agree. the epistemologies of, of the ancient tradents. Yep, yep. And so I really wanted to, to use the methodology to say, say even if, even if you don't accept uh, the, the, the historical value of an image of Jesus, they did. And mm-hmm. they were thinking about these things in those terms, not our terms. So if we want to actually kind of figure out what was going on then, we have to figure out a way to explain how they came to all these different conflicting images. So, you know, I go on in the book to say, I don't think what Luke claims Jesus did in Luke in Luke 4, which is to stand up and read in a synagogue, I don't think that's historically accurate. I don't think Jesus really could have done that. But I was very interested in saying, okay, so how is it that Luke came to the idea that he, that he could? What was, it, what was it that led to that? Instead of just saying, okay, so Luke 4 is just not part of the discussion. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Okay. I wanted to explain historically the inauthentic, the inauthentic what other people would label inauthentic. Right. So there's some way in which that overlaps. I mean, I, I know from lots of other conversations we've had that, you know, Watson, what you're you're doing and other people are doing doesn't match exactly with Watson and there's some disagreement, but there's some ways in which, of course, it also is intramural in the sense that there's partially what Watson was doing in gospel writing is trying to say from a kind of reception geschichte perspective that both the canonical and the non-canonical both represent but, yeah. You know traditions that are developing, Legitimate and, and they to an extent. Yeah. and they and they witness to something going on. Yes, right? I, I mean, mean what I and that's helpful to sort of recognize how people were reading the text. You know, yeah, yeah. Even and if they're not canonical. That's right. And and Francis and I have had this conversation several times, not just uh, at SBL. And my line is is that he should like it based on what he said otherwise. Uh, yeah. Other uh, um, 
otherwise in, in other publications. And but he and, doesn't like the social memories. Well, memory thing. he Francis is convinced that uh, form criticism is the correct way to think about the uh, gospel tradition. Okay. So what I haven't managed to persuade him on is that, but I remain utterly persuaded myself about is that form criticism really uh, is doing something different from a tradition perspective than what uh, the Gadamer and the descendants of Gadamer are really doing. Yeah. Uh, so um, Francis is very uh, strong on the value of reception history, uh, but there's a, and I, there's a specific type of work that's being done in memory theory uh, that, I mean, when, when at, at SBL, when we had the discussion of this book, his main, he, you know, he was very complimentary of the book it, itself and its conclusions, but what he didn't like was what I was saying about form criticism. Right, right. Uh, and and for, he has said at SNTS as well that form criticism arises naturally out of mm. exegeti- exegesis. I just don't think that's the case. Right. I think it's an external model that's applied to the text, right. like okay. all theories. Yeah. Well, what I appreciate beyond the methodology stuff, which was, I felt like a helpful chapter for me to get clear what memory studies looks like. I mean, I've, I've read on it several times and every time I feel like I circle towards a little closer understanding and this, and I, when I read this, I thought, okay, that's a helpful chapter on that. Of course, I agree with you on the criteria of authenticity as well, but particularly just in the first half of the book, the the survey and the very careful nuanced argument about literacy. I mean, just the idea that it's already affected my lecturing on this, just the idea that, um, of course there were levels of literacy. I mean, as soon as you say it, you're like, of course, but like a lot of times, as you point out, we haven't thought about that. We've either just asked the question in a simple form, you know, what was the percentage of literacy? Was Jesus himself or other people literate or not? And to recognize right. all the nuance that's in that, that there were all kinds of levels of people that could maybe read but not write, and then they could maybe only just sign their or sign their name and other things. And that was just, I just thought right. you did, I've already told several people, it is a model of careful, original, nuanced scholarship. And it's short too. You know, yeah, I mean, it was like, it, like, get in get out you get i mean i feel like you did a good job you surveyed the right people and i don't know i just thought it was really good i appreciate oh, it so thanks yeah and and i think what what also goes underappreciated often is that the, the social value of particular little literate skills yeah yeah that, uh sure. what was not monolithic either different depending on where someone was in society and what type of skills they had themselves mm. you know they they might have viewed the exact same kind of literacy event with completely different assumptions and that's no different than what we do today i mean our field is dominated by reading uh reading things in languages in which we're not first speakers yeah so you know when you think about using greek or hebrew or aramaic or syriac or uh coptic or something like that those things happen with us within our scholarly field all the time. Yeah, yeah and you yeah. were also obviously dealing with the multilingual environment in antiquity, so so it's, it was much more complex. Yeah. And and the memory stuff is as well. I think the I think people get tripped up on the memory stuff because every or at least my perception is people come to that discussion thinking, well, I know what memory is. Right. So now let me see what they're doing with it, and. 
I can't tell you the number of times that we that I have to backtrack and say, well, that's not really what it's about. Mm-hmm. That's not really what it's about. Mm-hmm. Um, and there have been several publications where I think people patently don't understand the theory. Right, right. Uh, so, yeah, well, it takes a little. It's a paradigm shift a little bit because of the uh, epistemologically to kind of kind of come to understand what mm-hmm. you're saying about memory. Yeah. Um, but it's I don't know if you've read and over the years on the neuroscience side of it because it's actually really affirming a lot of what as you probably know yeah like i have a very dear friend he's uh, actually the chair of the psychology department at L, and uh, he goes to my church and he's a world expert on gerontological psychology and dementia and alzheimer's yeah and so we you know, we've talked about the neuroscience kind of side of the memory yeah. things, and I've read other things too. There's, you know, memory. Well, what they're doing with it's not stored and retrieved. That's memory right. is the making sense from from the present yeah. of the past. That's that's you why know. a lot of people suffering from dementia, music is a good therapy because it reactivates that part of their brain, mm-hmm. but it does so externally. That's yeah. right. Uh, I haven't done as much on the neurological side because I, I haven't personally gotten a firm grasp yet on how to use that in New Testament research. That's not to say that it can't be done. Right. Uh, and there are people who are doing it. Alan Kirk, uh, for me, is the person who is leading the charge okay. there. But what what he uh, is doing, and I have read the research that he's working in as well, what it's, sa- what it's showing is that even on the, even in the biographical or the um, personal memory uh, is still sociologically encoded, meaning whatever is going on inside your brain is still impacted by the environment in which you mm-hmm. operate. Uh, which is, t- to I mean, you deal with this in hermeneutics, but mm-hmm. to say that this is the opposite of the way that mu- much historical critical research uh, has conducted itself, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is is an right. understatement. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just. And it, it's frust- it is frustrating when people say, well, that's, you know, when you when you talk about memory, you're just talking about eyewitnesses. Like, that, the word eyewitness never occurs uh, for me unless I'm saying that even for eyewitnesses, all of these social factors come in. So I don't, I don't personally, we, we may disagree here, but I don't personally find there to be, uh, or at least I'm not yet convinced that the quality of memory for an eyewitness is somehow hmm. different from the quality of secondary uh, witness, but. Um, hmm. Yeah, I don't know about that. <clears throat> I mean, that's that's a tricky one, and I, I suppose you'd almost have to take it on a case-by-case basis, but yeah. at least, I mean, one of the things Bauckham argues, of course, is that that would have been valued more. Maybe we could ask the secondary question, was that a correct evaluation, but at least well, in the ancient world, that, this is the that thing eyewitnessing that was I've, valued more because of personal investment see that that's where I think it would tie into it kind of cognitively and hermeneutically what I would, is that personal yeah, investment helps helps understand to some degree well <laughs> so, but, but 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 equally what the research shows is personal investment also hurts in some cases particularly traumatic events because uh, your social structure is torn down in a way that an independent observer right. is not for example if you witness someone very close to you in a horrible mm-hmm. violent accident there are people who can no longer come to articulate what happened. And it's right. precisely because their whole moral order, their social order yeah. has collapsed as a result of that. So it can, but it also can work the other way. And it's precisely in trying to determine in which situations does it work in which ways. Because even the research on violence and memory, 
there's not a particularly predictable way that it always mm-hmm. happens. Right, right. Uh, and and so you know, Bachum, I'm I'm not one of the people that dismisses Richard. I think Richard's. <clears throat> I mean, I think he's a genius. <clears throat> but what he does with social memory, in particular, in Jesus and the eyewitnesses, I don't think can really be done. What you can stress is that the rhetorical value of claiming eyewitness status was different. But a demonstration that those that those memories are qualitatively different than okay. secondary memories, that's what's for me is missing. Right. I don't sure. and, and I and I don't know how to make the argument. Yeah, Maybe yeah. the argument can be made. I just don't know how to do it. And again, yeah, it'd be impossible to argue that quantifiably or something. You'd have to take or, everybody's mem- memories and somehow objectively evaluate them. Right. right. There's and no this way is you the type of information right. we don't right. have in the right. ancient world, which is why people say, Oh well, you know, Bartlett demonstrated that blah blah blah. That's true, but we only have, and this is where, you know, Richard's category, category of testimony in that mm-hmm. book. I really wish he'd have done more with that. Mm-hmm. Because that's, this is what we're dealing with in the ancient world. Claims. Claims that we can't go down to the county courthouse and check. So we can only work with, why, we can only ask, why did they come to think what they came to think? What plausibly accounts for what they thought? Uh, without assuming that we can actually kind of get to it. Which actually comes back to part of what you're arguing in the Jesus literacy, particularly with the issue of how different levels of society would have perceived literacy differently. Yeah. That I think that goes a long ways to explain why um, people, some people might have perceived Jesus as part of the scribal elite and some people perceived him as not part of the scribal elite precisely because it depends on their kind of social location. If they didn't know any reading or writing for him to be able to stand up and say anything or whatever, they're going to say, wow, this guy's trained where the scribes are going to look at him and say, he doesn't know what he's talking about, you know? Yeah. And and look, the same thing happens to us in our studies. Recall like your, your, you know, undergrad or early graduate yeah. education where you had a professor and you went and talked to people yep. about how great this professor was and he or she was just an absolute genius and I've never come across anybody like this they're, they're one of the top you right, know right. scholars in the world and then you go on to get your doctorate and become right. a scholar yourself and you realize well actually you know <laughs> they're really great people I would never be dismissive of them but right, right. they're not actually a top scholar in the right, world right. they're actually you just, you not got even, no, no frame of reference that's to know right. Right, yeah. you, your ability to judge that discourse yeah. changed. Right. And so what you thought about it. Yeah, the historical reality changed. didn't change. That's the right. historical person. That's right. right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In fact, I mean, our students will someday see us for the, you know, shams that we are. I just, I'm just hope that I'm just waiting to get to retirement. That's all. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, yeah, well, there's some, degree, some truth to that. Um, I mean, as I read it, I was struck again just how helpful all that you're saying is and also aware that I'm going to tend more towards a literary and theological kind of ultimate evaluation where you're not opposed to that, but you're, you know, you're doing historical, at least in this book, you're doing a kind of historical Jesus studies, not in the modernistic sense, but in a current sense of it, you know. And so like even on the issue of differences between Luke and Mark and Matthew on, or John, on the presentation of Jesus's literacy level, is he part of the scribal elite? You know, a big part of me still says, I'm comfortable with those being 
literary and theological emphases that are different between them. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and we don't have to agree on that either, but I just mean, I was just aware well, as I was reading I couldn't it, so. hardly come to the end of a book on Jesus' literacy and not say, more likely than not, what his status actually was. Yeah. I mean, that, you yep. know. Yeah, no, I understand. Yeah, and, yep. and, and it was, and I appreciate your comment about whether it's historical Jesus studies or not, I would emphatically insist that it is. It's yeah. just not, it's not the kind that's been done before. Kind, yeah. But, right, yeah. but the quest for the historical Jesus has always been bigger than one era or the remnant, the methodological yep. remnants of one yep. era. I yep. mean. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The dominance of the mid, the first half of the 20th century yeah, is still you, so there, but it, it is changing. And I mean, yeah, really and I, yeah, that's now. right, in a variety of ways. I mean, right. you look at the the now kind of more widespread skepticism of for hypothetical sources. Yep. I think that the, the idea of an Ermarcus or a Q or, um, you know, any of the, 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 the saying source or the, yep. the sign source in Jehanine studies. Yeah, cues on hard times. Yeah, that, that all made complete sense <laughs> oh, under, yeah, a pre, totally. uh, under a previous tradition model. But yep. I think that tradition model is breaking down and so people are le- kind of less apt to affirm it. Not that people don't no, still. I, they do and vehemently. But Actually, I wanted to ask you a question about that. I mean, I, I've, I've also thought about that sociologically because of part of why we believe what we believe on those issues has so much to do with it with individuals who happen to make good arguments and often be good people i think of mark goodacre part i think part of the reason why q is on the ropes now is because mark's a really nice guy and he does really good work you know what i mean yeah and 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 i think the arguments are good too in my opinion against it but yeah I, i'm just aware of the sociological factor of our knowledge or influence of our knowledge in that yeah. you know what i mean the, uh, yeah the, well, i mean there's there's plenty of a-holes who people agree with their theories as well right, but, right. So, yeah. but, but, um, but it helps though when somebody's a good person and they influence I, people you know? I think that I think right. that Mark uh, first of all is a brilliant scholar uh, and second of all you're right he's a good person um, and uh, and he's a good person also to the people he disagrees yeah, with. yeah exactly you know that the, goes a, long the, ways. A, a lot yeah. of the members of the Toronto school vehemently disagree with him but uh, you know I he would tell you that some of them are his good friends mm-hmm. and that he, you know, he, he really enjoyed, for example, working with John Kloppenborg mm. uh, when John John is on the editorial board for LNTS now that I'm the editor, but he was previously on it with Mark. And Mark and John would evaluate the synoptic problem manuscripts together. Right, right. Uh, and, you know, they have radically different opinions on yeah. the answers to those questions. Yep, yep. But, but, but I think the, what Mark has really captured and done well with is he's the type of person you can disagree with and yep. learn from. Absolutely. Where it doesn't, the, the discussion doesn't break down. Yeah. So. Well, here's yeah. the question I want to ask you about it. Yeah. A brief story on it. So, a uh, year and a half or so ago, I was in Cambridge and staying with Richard Bauckham, and we were, I was there for something else, but we took a long walk, as we always do when I'm with him, because he's quite a walker. And uh, we were talking about how we got onto it, but these kind of issues. And I saw that he was reading the book in the LNTS series. I think it is on Matthew and posteriority. It, that is in the LNTS yeah, series. Yeah. Yeah. And I said to him, um, I, I had said to him that I had finally just been, finally allowed myself to be fully um, Golder, you know, Good Acre for theory. The only struggle I'd had with it, like I didn't really care about Q, but my struggle was 
I hated the idea that Luke found the beautiful Sermon on the Mount and ripped it to shreds. You know, <laughs> that was like an existential crisis for me, you know? Yeah. And so I was talking to Richard about this and he said, well, of course that's not the only option. Matthew and posteriority. Yeah, yeah, and, that's right. And what's interesting, and what he pointed out is he said, you know, I mean, the, the Golder, Goodacre, theory versus Matthean posteriority, neither of those has a necessary leg up. I mean, they're both equal. It's just that the one has been talked about a lot, but hardly anybody's ever talked about both. I, I, yeah. mean, I mean, at the level of the argument, might, but I'm saying they're equally possible as conceptualizations that Mark is first and then Matthew Luke or Luke Matthew. So I talked with them and then I, I'm like, okay, you know, there's something the, to it. And then also yeah. the beauty of, ah, then I can preserve my love for Matthew's high literary art, which I think is justified. Um, and so the question I had, but I want to hear your thoughts on that too, is how would your arguments in this book maybe change with Matthew and posteriority? Because you make some arguments about, you know, Luke, it's not a strong handed argument, but you know, Luke uh -huh. presenting Jesus somewhat differently than Matthew and Mark do. Would that, would Matthew and posteriority the, affect that? The Nazareth, the Nazareth synagogue? Pro particularly, yeah. yeah. And just overall his scribal, I mean, you make some kind if, of reduction, geschicklicke kind of arguments about. Oh yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. So, yeah. Without affecting the, anything in your argument. Uh, overall, no. It, the, the, the short answer is overall it wouldn't affect it, it because um, my real argument is saying, oh, okay, already in the first century, some people thought Jesus right. was in the manual labor class and some people thought Jesus was in the uh, right. scribal literate right. class. So you're not really making so a redaction. How do we argument, explain right? the fact that already at this early date, both things are expressed. What what type of historical scenario could have led people to these two compl conflicting images already right. in the first century? So my overall argument wouldn't be affected at all. Uh, the argument that um, that the redaction of Mark six three, where Jesus is identified as a carpenter, under my argument, people always soften or remove that claim. No one identifies Jesus as a carpenter when we know they have, we demonstrably can see that they had a source that didn't identify them as that, uh, under my argument. Mm -hmm. So if you were right that uh, Matthew was posterior to Luke, um, then that would be an example where they did. Because Luke does not have a manual labor Jesus, mm -hmm. and Matthew would have introduced that. But then you would have to get into whether Matthew introduced it from Luke or, or from Mark. Mark. And just retained it, yeah. That's right. right. So I don't think that it ultimately would disrupt my main What do you think argument. about Matthew and posteriority overall? Well, just because you think the Sermon on the Mount is beautiful doesn't mean that Luke did. Uh, oh, come on! <laughs> and so, the entire history of the church sees it as it's the most studied text in the entire history of the Bible. That so. maybe so. Well, Luke studied it as well. He just thought his was his version was more beautiful. Ouch. Uh, oh. He's like, no, no, well, no. my well, horcruxes just died. Yeah. Ouch. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't have I don't have a strong opinion. While you were saying that, I was sitting there thinking, I wonder if it really is the effect of Luke being paired with Acts that Acts pulls Luke uh, later. How so? Well, no, just in the minds of scholars. I mean, you know, if they think, well, I, we put Acts back here at the edge, you know, yeah. at, at the edge of the first century or in the second century. And we think of Luke Acts, them, you know, somehow being paired together. Um, then I wonder if that just pulls the the date back. There's a there's a a book that's being considered for publication right now that I was asked to provide a statement on. That's a redating of uh, Robinson's work. 
and or, or not a, a, a kind of revisiting. Yeah, it's of, a, it's of a revisiting him, right? of Robinson's redating. A very minority report. Yeah, it was a kind of radical attempt at redating yeah, everything. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> Neil and Wright have this comment in mm -hmm. uh, their book about how that his theories were never taken on board. Yeah. But it wasn't because everyone, anyone thoroughly disproved it's, no, it. Totally. It's just they they just didn't <clears throat> accept it. Yep. Uh, and I was always struck, really struck by that. And yep, I was, I, I was just, I just said an email the other day. Someone asked me about the dating of the Gospels, and I said, uh, you know, the, these are the traditional dates. But I increasingly think people just go along with these because, for the sake of convenience, mm -hmm. it's easier just to go along with it. So, I don't really have an opinion on Mithian posteriority, okay. uh, but uh, I tend to still think. Mark and Luke both, uh, Matthew and Luke both knew Mark uh, in what order they did. I agree, yeah. I agree you know, that, the, yeah. the problem is, it, any, and this is a problem with this whole field, is that this whole discussion, this synoptic problem is, any one piece that would work for one yep. theory, yep. there's 10 others that work for yep. another. Yep. And uh, so it's a, it's a great kind <clears throat> of uh, conundrum. But I, yeah. I, Mark Goodacre has persuaded me uh, I, I say I'm Q agnostic. I, I lean so heavily toward, you know, Q agnosticism that I would I would caucus with the Q atheists. Yeah, yeah. Well, me too. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. So within that, then then the question of Luke, who's who's last in the synoptics, Matthew or Luke? And I'm I'm more open now to Matthew being Luke. I think Matthew being last. I think it makes more sense of some things. But 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 I, it's your argument about the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> Particularly, yeah. <laughs> uh, truth be told, that yeah. certainly. I mean, it is a master, a literary masterpiece. The Sermon on the Mount is, and, that, and it's I, I dismantling. It's dismantling is is uh, hard to stomach. Maybe that's as far as my argument gets. I'd like to see. So. I'd like to see people be honest about this type of thing more often. Just say, you know, yeah. Yeah, that's possible, but I really don't like that idea. Right. Uh, you know. Uh, that should be your next SBL paper. Yeah, it's yeah. possible, but I don't like that idea. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. All right. So I was also looking at Jesus and the Scribal Elite, which again um, seems to be a very helpful. I mean, this was very accessible. I mean, this you're, this was very readable too. But it kind of brings together a couple other things, and also even maybe brings Jesus's literacy down. Yeah. One more slider, slight, slightly lower level on the, the discussion, shelf. Right? Yeah, the, so you, the discussion, yeah. not just literacy itself. <laughs> yes, very I didn't clear. change my opinion. Right, on yeah. his no, just very accessible. Um, and is that have you kind of seen that book, the Baker book, with um, as kind of a textbook and some yeah, using it as that? It was maybe? designed as an upper level textbook, yeah. but I still wanted it to uh, to make a, an original contribution because what I wanted to say about the controversy narratives I hadn't seen yeah. said yeah. before. Right. And I had always thought that trying to do a textbook level discussion with an original contribution was a no-no. But James Ernest was Good at, old James. Was yep. at Ur Erdman's now, but he was at Baker yep. then. He said, no, no, no. He said, I, I think you can do that. That happens all the time. You know, not every book can do that. And so... So uh, it's not too radical. And it's not like the stuff you're saying about the anything in there is like radical. You're really just kind of saying, let's think about this and I, I, yeah. If I understand on the conflict stuff, you're saying, you know, let's not just think about what conflicts of content led to them wanting Jews to be put to death, but yeah. let's talk about what might have been the conflict from the beginning that he's yeah. appearing to be a scribal trained person and challenging their honor, really, yeah. in a lot of ways. Is that uh, Yeah, and I, you know, yeah, uh, yes, very much the case. And, and I grew up in the church, and um, 
And I realized that what happens in the academy is what happens in the church, which is that people just assume that there was a conflict between Jesus and other Jewish teachers. And it was it was precisely in the midst of writing Jesus' literacy that I that I started thinking about this why. You know, we yeah. we know from Josephus that there were people that um, that the Jewish leadership kind of just dismissed as unimportant, right. or you know, Rome just marched out and killed them. Uh, why did you know what took? How did how did the conflict emerge? Was the real question that I was aiming to contribute right. toward an answer is yep. because uh, you know it's just assumed. Yeah, they they didn't like each other. And the reason is because it often is given because Jesus it was it was because of what Jesus said about Torah, which is true, it, it, right? Wait, yeah, but it, it, it's true, but it's also true for you know hundreds of other Jewish yeah. teachers that didn't end up getting right. crucified. Yep, that's fair. You know, the, no, the, the rabbinic yep. li- literature is rife with people arguing about Torah, and what's and what that uh, exam and and so are Second Temple. Yeah. Uh, sources. People disagree about anything Torah do, all the time. Jewish people are debating with each other all the time. Right. right? So, yeah. so the question right. is, why did yeah. why did so Jesus' funny. opinion even matter? Yeah. How did he go from being someone that you know was not on their radar yeah. as a problem to to being? On I mean, their crowds radar. are part of it. Yeah, I, I do mean, think that, I mean, crowds are part of it. Exorcisms, you know, reports of exorcisms. That's right. Healings, but but the social, I think your argument well, is that the social class kind of issue. That is that part, is of, part it of it as well. Yeah, which it's I've, not been a part of the discussion. I've and, added that to my lecturing now on it. I feel like yeah. you added a slice of seeing those things, which you get a little bit in John from the literary critics who have talked about like the challenge and repost and honor shame. So yeah, sometimes some of those exactly people right. have pointed yeah. out that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, the honor shame stuff. And, and the, uh, that's you know, enhanced my reading of the Gospels. Yeah, too. It, yeah. it is. And, and it really was an effort to say, yes, all of those things contributed, but they all kind of also start with the con with the conflict as we see it in the Gospels, yeah. where they're already upset about right, Jesus. Right. They're already confronting yeah. him. And I was interested from historical Jesus research, how did we get to that point in the yeah. first place? Why, yeah. if, if we think that the controversy narratives reflect some type of actual disagreement between Jesus and other teachers, and I do, yeah, yeah. I don't think that they're utter and complete right, right. fabrications. Yeah, you, you reject those. those um, okay, so one more thing. Yeah. If you can, down in that side pocket, you'll see some envelopes. Okay. And there's different colors. You can choose any color you want. Sorry. All okay. right. Oh, there's one came out. Uh, I don't know what that is. No, that's not it. That's not okay, it. this isn't it. Okay. <laughs> so just choose one of those envelopes, and in there, there's some random question. Okay. And you'll answer it, and then I'll commit to answering it as well. Okay. All right. All right. And I don't oh, know what's man. on it at all. <laughs> this can go a lot, it can go a lot of different ways, yeah. Oh, uh, we can always edit it out. <laughs> I wasn't always a boring New Testament scholar. All right. <laughs> What is your most treasured possession? Okay. All right, wife, my, kids. My wife okay, and kids. Okay, all right, fine. Okay, no. Material. Let's get material, material here. Material uh, of the unimportant things. Um, there you go. That's fair. The only thing that's coming to mind is I have a 1961 Mickey Mantle MVP tops. Hey, that's uh, something. Baseball yeah. card. That's awesome. That I was given uh, when I was a kid. 
Okay. And I've held on to it. Is it in like a you yeah, got protected? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was a big baseball card collector. Yeah, that's very cool. Uh, and uh, that's the thing that's kind of popping into my head. Okay. Uh, What's your address again? <laughs> it's not worth much very now. Much now. Okay. All right. That's uh, good. What about good. you? It is hard. Um, yeah, I'm just going to go with my wife and kids. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Uh, you can't cut yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. I mean, of course. No, I think probably um, my father's collection of C.S. Lewis books from the 50s and 60s. My father died in 1972 when I was two years old. Oh, goodness. And so I don't have much from him, but my mom had kept, he loved C.S. Lewis and I do too. And uh, I have all these early editions of Lewis that have his name in them and sometimes his markings. All right, yeah. well, it's been great to have you on the show, man. Yeah, well, really thanks for having me. I appreciate delight. it. Yeah, yeah thanks, for the, Enjoy the thanks for the ski. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking hey. forward to it. Okay, very good. All right. Be care be on the lookout for those other Chris Keiths. <laughs> exactly. You know, that I'll, I'll mention this real quick before we finish I'll, and see if you have anything like this. There's a there there's a Chris Keith that writes Christian fiction. Ah. And there's also a Christian music artist okay. named Chris Keith. Okay. And I always get worried that when totally. people get on Amazon, they're going to think that, like, I Unless those people sell better, then you need to take advantage <laughs> of that, The only man. reason I created my author profile on Amazon was so that people would see that that stuff's not in it. I yeah. probably need to do that, too. Yeah, I yeah. haven't done that. That's very fun. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. Make sure you subscribe to all of our social media and especially our YouTube channel. We also have a Patreon account if you want to support us that way. Thanks again. We'll see you on the road.